Parallel Church, if you're joining us for the first time, special welcome to you. We called our church Parallel because we want to come alongside you. We want to come alongside our communities. We want to come alongside other ministries. We want to come alongside, and we have a slogan around here that's for love and for impact. And that simply means that we're following Jesus. That's We're a Jesus-believing, Jesus-following church. We don't have much tolerance for religion and what religion does, but we are madly, I am madly in love with Jesus. And we're madly in love with, with Jesus. And I'm following him. And his command is to love one another as he loved. And he was gracious and kind and merciful and gentle and and tolerant and I, I, he was he was just he was incredible and he instructed us to love like he did and that's what our mission is as a church we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination nor do we expect ourselves to ever be but we are doing our best to follow Jesus and his lead and to love all and and to make an impact in our communities and so welcome if you're joining us for the first time man last sunday was amazing i just just got to say easter sunday last sunday we had 1800 54 in attendance last Sunday. Come on. That was pretty cool. The best stat of all, though, 48 people gave their lives to Jesus last Sunday. Come on. Man, we had uh, 470 kids. 470 kids. And a lot of candy. You're very welcome, parents. I'm, I'm a parent myself. I know how the week has gone. We apologize, uh, sort of. They had a lot of fun. Uh, but when Easter Sunday was great. We, we're also very, very excited that we, uh, in two weeks, we get to have another big special day. Anybody know what, what two weeks is? Mother's Day. I heard a lot of female voices shouting back at me. Guys, just a reminder, two weeks from now is Mother's Day, and we also have a very special service planned for all of you moms and ladies. It's going to be amazing. So if you're a mom, invite your kids out. If, you, if, you, if you're a kid, invite your mom out. This is going to be a special, special time you're not going to want to miss. And this morning, I'm excited to continue uh, the conversation that we began, I don't know, a couple months ago called Let's Take Our Job Back. And what we're doing in this, in this conversation is where I'm just letting out some of my angst. Is that okay? Um, over the last couple years, I've had felt a whole lot of, I don't know, turmoil and questions. And, and I've done a lot of research and study into the early church and a lot of deep dive research into, into Jesus. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is Jesus was not afraid to ask questions. Jesus, in fact, most of, did you know that Jesus asked way more questions than he ever gave answers? He asked questions of everyone, everywhere, all the time. And here's what I've learned. It, it, somehow we have lost the, the courage, the culture, whatever it might be, to ask questions. And we can't, you question anything, and anybody notice that? You question somebody's opinion, and they're automatically pinpoint you as being opposite of them and defriend you and all the, like, like all the rest of the crazy. And we've gotten to a society where we stopped asking questions. Anybody else notice this? And when we stop asking questions, we're in trouble. Because if you stop asking questions, it's easy to get led astray. It really is. And truth is never threatened by questions. Because truth is truth. And so in this, we're asking questions. And as a pastor, 
I'm, I want to ask questions like, is Christianity real? And, you're, and some of you might be going, like, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be telling me it's real. Listen, let's ask questions. And here's why I'm asking this question. is because I got raised in the church, and being raised in the church, I've had a hard time, and this I've come to realize by asking questions, I've had a hard time separating what is man traditions or traditions of men and, and women, but tr- human traditions, and what is truth. And there's a lot of what I grew up being taught in the church that are traditions that I, you know, began to question going, why do we do that? Why do we believe that? Is that, is that true? And realizing that a lot of our traditions in the church have been, have been thrown at us like commands or like, like truth and, and, and to the place where you can't, you can't, the blurred lines between tradition and truth. And so I thought, let's ask questions. Let's poke into some of that stuff. Let's find out. What is truth? Really truth. What is church the way Jesus designed it to be and what the early church modeled it to be, not what we traditionally think it to be? Because I, I want to take our jobs back. I want to go back to the roots. Let's go back to the beginning because that's where life is. And throughout COVID, I began to question. I began to question, is, is church just a gathering on weekends? Because if it's that... I got a lot of better things to do. And I'm a pastor. Like, I'm like, come on. Like, like, come on. Like, if it's just a gathering, if, if that's what we've reduced it to, I don't know. There's a lot of better things we could do. There's football games on Sunday. Do you understand this, right? Like, there's... But if this is life-changing, if this is community-changing... If this is, this is world-changing, if this is the truth, I, there's no place I'd rather be. So let's find out. What's the purpose of church? Now, in this series, if you, if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go back and we ask some of these hard questions. But we've come to the place where we're, we're beginning to see that the church is not designed to be a gathering place, or even just a group of people, that the church is called to redeem cities. That's from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end, there's a call for the church to redeem cities. And so out of that revelation, um, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah because there's an entire book in the Bible about a man who did just that. He redeemed a city. And here's what we've learned so far. We've just gotten through chapter 1. And Nehemiah, the first thing we see is that it's, Nehemiah is, I think, very applicable for today because it starts off with the cities in ruins. And, and I'm going, yeah, that makes sense. Because anybody think our world might be in ruins? Amen. It's a little crazy. If you don't think that, watch the news. Right? Anybody think our country's in ruins? Right? So, so I mean, we're like, we're like, there's a lot of going on. Our city is, is, is in ruins. Like, things aren't, aren't getting any better. We're seeing this. So, I'm thinking Nehemiah, seeing Jerusalem in ruins, I'm thinking there's things we can learn from Nehemiah. And what did he do? And the first thing we learned from Nehemiah is that Nehemiah took personal responsibility, which gave him the ability to respond. That's the first thing we've seen. Verse 6, Nehemiah, the city is in ruins. He doesn't blame the, the king or the kingdom that destroyed his city. He doesn't blame them at all. 
If they were right there. He was working for them. He's a prisoner of war. He could have very easily pointed the blame at the kingdom who the very you know, kingdom that destroyed his city. He could easily cast the blame there and he didn't which is amazing. And he didn't cast the blame on God and said, you weren't, didn't show up and you let us down and you promised, but you didn't deliver. He didn't put, cast the blame on God. Nehemiah took personal responsibility and which, and he took personal responsibility. He says, I and my father's house have sinned. That's his personal responsibility. First thing he did, which as I was thinking about this, I was like, man, in his situation, he could look you know, every day into the eye of the kingdom, the king representing the kingdom that destroyed his city. And he, had, he could have very easily cast the blame. And today, for me, I find it easier to cast the blame on someone else, on God, on whatever. And when I do that, I just realize that I give the responsibility to them to fix it. So we can cast the blame on our prime minister to fix our country and that's giving him the ability to respond. But if we take responsibility, we give ourselves the ability to respond. Nehemiah did that. The second thing Nehemiah did when he gave himself the ability to respond is, I'm sure he asked the same questions that, that I would have asked. Is like, well, who am I? Like, my country's in ruins. My city's in ruins. Who am I? What can I do? And Nehemiah was a butler. He was a prisoner of war. He could very easily just said, like, who, who am I? But he, he didn't. Nehemiah re remembered his identity, which gave him the courage res to respond. So he, he accepted responsibility, which gave him the ability to respond. And he remembered his identity as, as part of the chosen, God's chosen people, which gave him the courage to respond. So when he was asking himself the question, who am I that I should respond? He's like, I remember, God, you have chosen us. We are your chosen people. And in case you're wondering today, like, you know, who are we that we could redeem a city? Who are are we that we could do something for our country? Who are we that could do anything in the world? I'll tell you who you are. The Bible says you're an ambassador of the King of Kings. That means you're a representative of the King of Kings on earth. That's who you are. And when you understand who you are, you will have the courage to respond, to do something about it. The third thing that Nehemiah did is Nehemiah didn't just pray for a solution. He prayed for the opportunity to be the solution. See, I, 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 in my prayers, I'll be like, God, you need to fix whatever it might be. God, you need to do something. God, you need to show up. God, you need to send revival. God, you need to, if, God, if you just send revival, our country would be healed. God, if you would just do something. And by doing that, we're praying for a solution. Nehemiah didn't pray for revival, didn't pray for a solution, didn't pray for God, didn't ask God to send somebody else. Nehemiah said, God, give me an opportunity to be the solution. So from Nehemiah, I mean, learning those three things, I think those are applicable. And when, when he prayed to be the solution, God answered. Now I'm going to pick it up in, in chapter 2. And I'm going to read a couple of the verses, just go through these quickly, because we've covered these last time. And then we're just going to take off from there. So it came about, this is verse 1, chapter 2, it came about after the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. He's giving wine to the king because he's the king's cupbearer and he's specifically saying I had not been sad, not intentionally anyway, been sad in the king's presence. And the reason why he can't be sad in the king's presence is because the king has a lot of weight on his shoulders, a lot of burden and, and a lot of trouble that comes to 
him, all the trouble comes to him, and the, the cupbearer's responsibility is to not add to the trouble, not add to the problem, but to lighten the king's load and, and to be, so they has to be, his countenance has to be just right. He says, I'm, my, I'm paying attention to my countenance. That's part of my job. So then the king said to him, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then he says, then I was very much afraid, because if you, <laughs> just by being sad, you could get fired, but not just fired. When you don't just fire a cupbearer, you, you off his head. Like, it's, it was a death sentence if you got fired by the king. So he's very much afraid for, for good reason. But then he see, he's been praying, remember? And he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when, when not be sad when my city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? Which I'm thinking at this point, Nehemiah's like, this is good. He, he, my head is still on, and the king is asking a question. He's probing deeper. Good. Like, so far, so good. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I love that. He prayed for an opportunity. The opportunity is right there. And he prayed again and going, God, is this the time? Is this the time? Then look at this. Verse 5. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Man, I love this. Who is Nehemiah to rebuild the city? He's a cupbearer. He's a prisoner of war. What does he know about rebuilding a city? Yet he had accepted responsibility, strengthened his courage to be able to respond because he knows his identity, prayed to be the solution, and when the opportunity comes, he says, I'm going I'm to go build. What if you and I did the same thing? Like instead of saying, well, somebody else can do it, somebody else is more equipped and saying, no, no, I'm going to. I'm going to fix my city. I'm going to do this. We're going to do this. I love that. Then the king said to me, the, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Wisdom. <laughs> right? He's going to tell him when he's going to return. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass until I come to Judah. Then he says, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house, uh, for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was upon me. Now, I love this. Nehemiah. He, he's, he's prayed, but he hasn't just prayed. He's been planning too, right? Faith and wisdom. He's been planning so that when the opportunity came, he knew exactly what to request and what he needed. He had thought through in his mind the journey and had prepared everything that needed to be prepared. And then, watch this. Then he says, when he gets the request, he gets the answer, he doesn't go, man, I was good. <laughs> I was prepared, I spoke well, I had so much courage. Now, in the midst of all this, he goes, the king gave this to me, not because of me, but because my God. And this is what we need to remember, that when we have breakthrough and we have anointing, all the rest of it, we need to always remember where our help comes from. All right, let's continue. Verse 9. 
Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the, uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, uh, officials heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. <laughs> this is where I want to stop. I don't want to park here for, the, for our remainder of time because this is what stood out to me as I was reading this. We had just read two verses before. Just read. Verse 8. The hand of the Lord is on me. Amen. The hand of the Lord is on me. Two verses later, he's barely left and already he's facing opposition. And the reason why I want to bring that up is because I have had this theology. I have been taught. I have come to understand in this understanding, and I don't think I'm the only one. I think we as Western Christians have this idea or this thinking that I can't have the hand of God on me and opposition at the same time. We have this idea that when we are... Christians and God's kids, that he's going to save us from all the problems and save us from all the troubles. And that if, we're, if God's hand is on me, we're just going to be favor, no. pixie dust, and just going to be like. And you might not, if I was to ask you that, you might, might not go, no, 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 no. But wait, 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 wait. And if you were to ask me, I would have said, no, no, no. I know, you know, where there's fights and there's spiritual warfare and there's battle. I know, I know all that. And I would, I would have responded that way. Except that when trouble comes, I begin to question whether God's hand is on me. And except when trouble comes and opposition comes, I begin to question myself. I begin to question whether God is with me. I, get, I begin to question whether God is for me. I begin to question whether I've even heard his voice. There's opposition. I begin to question everything. Am I just the only one? And here Nehemiah just leaves. The hand of God is on me. And immediately he faces opposition. So I'm thinking that instead of, instead of just, in our Christianity, instead of just praying for an escape from the problems, I wonder, and for God to save us from the problems, don't have to stop praying, but I'm wondering if we should at the same time learn how to handle the problems. And I was reading in First Peter, and I, I realized that there's an entire book in the New Testament, book of 1 Peter, written by Peter to the early church for the entire purpose of teaching them how to handle opposition. An entire book in the Bible that is teaching us as believers. And the reason why Peter wrote this letter is because the early church was facing enormous amount of opposition, persecution, trials, like enormous amount of, of, of opposition. And so Peter writes an entire letter, letter in teaching them how to handle opposition. And I'm, gonna get, I'm just going to throw verses at you from 1 Peter, just going to read them. And if you're a note taker, you're going to want to write down the reference. Don't write down the whole verse. Write down the reference and a key on that because there's so many keys in 1 Peter on how to handle opposition. Is this timely for anybody? This is timely. This, this, anybody needs to know how to handle some, some 
stress, some battles. Okay. Just making sure. Look what Peter says. First Peter 4, verse 12, he says this. Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Peter had to write that because we as Christians are often surprised when the devil fights back, when we face opposition, when something bad happens. He says, don't be surprised. That's his first instruction. Don't be surprised that you're going to face opposition. You're going to face trials. Don't be surprised. And don't think you're going through something strange. I don't see Nehemiah when Sanballat and, and, and Tobiah start after them. I don't see, you know, Nehemiah, you know, taking five steps out of the city and they start harassing him. And he's like, oh, I never saw that coming and running back in. <laughs> Although the children of Israel, watch, the children of Israel kind of act surprised. They get into the wilderness and they realize that it was difficult, that it wasn't so easy. They get into the wilderness and what did they do? They said, Moses, send us back. Send us back where? To Egypt. To the very place that we were slaves. Send us back to slavery? That's how crazy we get sometimes as Christians. Like, send us back. Let's, let's send me back to what was. Because why? Because we get surprised that we're facing opposition. Anybody, anybody ever box or hand-to-hand -hand combat, some, you know, martial arts or something? One of the things that they always teach you is, you know, you want to face. You like, you want to face. You want to see the blows coming. It's the if you see blows coming, those aren't the ones that are going to take you out. It's the sucker punches. It's the one you don't see coming that's going to get you. And as Christians, it's the same thing. Is that is that if if you if you the reason why Peter's saying don't be surprised, he says don't be surprised because it's the sucker punches. When you're surprised, that'll take you down. It'll take you out. Don't be surprised because when when you when you know there's going to be opposition. You can be prepared. Peter said in, in 1 Peter 5, verse 9, he says this, Stand firm against him, him being the devil, Amen. and be strong in your faith. So stand firm. James, the brother of Jesus, said the same thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter says stand firm against the devil and, and be strong. How are you going to stand firm against him? You be strong in your faith. And be strong in your faith. Faith is ultimate trust. It's putting ultimate trust in someone. And having faith in God is, is having ultimate trust in God. And that means that when you're facing opposition, the way you counterpunch the devil is by saying, it is not affecting my faith. My faith in God is not wavering. And I... I my God is still in control. Those sea billows roll, my God is still in control. Devil, you can throw your best hit, but it is not affecting my faith, my trust in God. And then it, then it says this, Peter says this, remember that your family of believers all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. I was like, why would he have to write that? I think he wrote the devil, one of the devil's tricks is to get you to think that you're the only one. I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one. If there's anything where you're feeling like, I'm the only one, that's a lie of the enemy. And the reason why the enemy uses that lie is because it, the Bible says that he seeks to devour just like a lion. How do lions hunt? Anybody watch Animal Planet or Discovery Channel? How do lions hunt? They isolate. 
And if they can isolate, you know, somebody from the herd, they can isolate some, you know, something from the herd, then they can, that's where they do their kill. And the devil hunts, the Bible says, the hunts just like that. So one of the lies that he's going to throw at you is you're the only one, because if you're the only one, nobody understands. And you begin to isolate yourself. And the moment you isolate yourself, he'll take you out. And this is why he says, this is why, remember your family, remember your family, remember your family. It's not the time to pull back. It's the time to pull in. Remember your family. You're not the only one. There's others all over the world who are going through the same, same thing. How to face trials. First Peter 3, verse 14, he says this, but even if you suffered uh, for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So then he says this, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Don't worry, don't be afraid. Here's the truth. Fear is more dangerous than the threats. Fear is the most dangerous thing. The opposition, the battle you're going through, fear is more dangerous than the diagnosis. Fear is more dangerous than the, than the criticism. Fear is more dangerous than the loss. Fear is more dangerous. Why? Fear and worry. Fear is more dangerous. Because fear is the root of many evils, including anger. Fear is the root. Did you know that outrage and courage both have the word rage in them? Think about that. Outrage and courage both have the word rage in them. But one is reactionary response to fear. Outrage is a reactionary response to fear. And courage is the calculated decision in spite of fear. So we can react or we can intentionally decide to move forward. And Peter's saying, don't, worry, don't let fear, don't let worry, don't let it set in. Don't do it, because that's more dangerous. He says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. And I'm, I'm worried for this church that Peter actually has to say, if you're suffering... Hopefully you haven't killed anyone. Like, I'm worried that he's having to write this to the church. Like, hopefully it's not for murder. Like, what kind of church is this? But he's, what Peter is saying here is Peter is saying that sometimes our, own suffer, our suffering is our own fault. Amen. That sometimes the reason why we're being criticized is because we were stupid. Sometimes, sometimes the opposition that we face is self-induced. So Peter is saying, right here, Peter is saying, if you're, suffer, if you're suffering, make sure, check, check, that it's not your fault. So do self-inspection and saying, could I have handled that better? Should I have done something? And, it, you know, something more, something better. And, and you, you don't dwell there. You don't sit on guilt like this, but you just, you accept it. You accept responsibility, which gives you the ability to respond. And then you move, you move ahead. You be quick to admit it, correct your ways, ask for repentance, whatever it might be. But don't, you know, sometimes we blame all the opposition. I can't do this and I can't do that. Can I give you a common one? I'm not picking on anybody here. This is so common. You're probably thinking I'm picking. This is so common. It's, it's so hard to make friends. That's a common one. It's so hard to make friends. Nobody's friendly here. No, it's, friendly. it's so hard to make friends. Yeah. 
Introspection might go, show yourself friendly. And then... Anyway, moving on. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, how to handle opposition. Peter says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to any, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect, but with gentleness and respect. In other words, what, what Peter's saying, he says, always be willing to give a defense. But notice what Peter's saying to defend. He's not saying always be ready to give a defense for yourself and for your own reputation. He says, no, no. Be ready to give a defense for his reputation. Always be ready to defend him. Right? And, and it's not, he's not saying be ready to defend yourself. It's not about preserving your own reputation. It's about preserving him. But when you preserve his reputation, let's do it with gentleness and respect. Come on, church. Amen. Come on. Because we have Christians, well-meaning Christians, who are saying, I'm witnessing for Jesus, standing on a street corner with signs that says, you're going to hell. Like, please don't. Please, please, please don't. Like, no. Because if you're going to give a defense for Jesus, it has to be with gentleness and respect. And if it doesn't check those two boxes... Just, just say nothing. Peter goes on in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. On Facebook. That, that was in the scripture there, right? I'm pretty sure that was in there. Block. <laughs> um. <laughs> Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Amen. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Peter's a disciple of Jesus. He heard Jesus say the same things. Bless those who, who curse you. Love your enemies. Right? Like, like, he heard it. But not only did Peter hear it, he saw it. He saw Jesus hanging on the cross and praying for those who put the nails in his hands and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine the impact of these guys who had heard Jesus say it and then watched him in his worst moments, watched him do it? And then Peter says, this is what God's called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. In other words, don't seek everyone else's blessing because there's a higher blessing. It's his blessing. And the, this is what I hear Peter saying. I hear Peter saying, this is not easy to do. But it's how we most reflect Jesus. Amen. We most reflect Jesus at the office when somebody hurls insults at you. Instead of retaliating, you, you bless them and you talk well of them. Amen. And it's hard to do. I know it's hard to do, but that's how we most reflect Jesus. 100%. Peter goes on, 1 Peter 5 verse 10, he says, In his kindness God called you to share in his eternal glory by, by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Listen, I hate, if I was Peter, I would have kept that sentence after you suffered a little while. I would have kept that part out. 
Because that would, like, no, Peter, I'm looking for encouragement. I'm looking for an escape from the suffering. I don't want to suffer for a little while and then get blessed. I don't, like, just, just skip that part. But the reality is, is he's not, not promising the escape from suffering. He's promising that in the midst of the storm, Jesus is in your boat. In the midst of the fiery furnace, Jesus is in the furnace with you. In the midst of their battle, he is your restorer. He is your support. He is your source of strength. There's other things that you can go to for support. There's other places you can go to for strength. There's other places you can go to to restore you. But, uh, but our only firm foundation, the one that will hold up, is Jesus. In the midst of the storm, he's the one to go to. And this is what Peter's saying. He says, don't forget. Don't forget. He will restore. He will strengthen. He will support. He'll be the firm foundation that won't give out. First Peter 1, verse 13, he says, so prepare your minds for action. Okay. What does that mean? But he says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. So there's part of me is like, prepare your mind for action? <laughs> Let's go. I'm ready. And exercise self-control. I, I, those are oxymorons, aren't they? Like self-control, prepare for action. Like, he's like, no, no, do, prepare for action. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. How? By putting all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Amen. That even if you don't get, <laughs> you don't get everything here, you're, you're going to get it. But then look at this. What does he mean by prepare your minds for action? Well, he explains this in, in chapter 4, verse 8. He says this. Most important of all, all this entire book, remember, all this, this entire book is about how to overcome opposition. And then he says, most important of all, I'm paying attention. Most important of all, continue, continue, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. How do you show love? Cheerfully share your home with those who are in need or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from the great variety of spiritual gifts. Use the, them well to promote yourself out of trouble. No, no. Use them well to serve one another. Here's what Peter says. Prepare your mind for action. Continue to show deep love. And I, I looked at it like, why does he have to write this? Why does he have to write this? Because my number one temptation when I'm facing opposition in a battle is to, is, to, is to step aside for a season, to step aside from my call, to question my call, to step aside from my call, to go, I'm, just, I'm going through battle right now, to re withdraw from serving because it's just too much to do right now. It's just too hard right now. And it's, it's, it's my temptation to pull back. Anybody else? And to shrink back. And, and Peter is saying, in the midst of all this, don't stop serving. Don't forget your call. Keep loving on others. Keep open house. I know you don't feel like, I know you're going through hell, but keep loving. Keep giving. Keep serving. Amen. And he's not talking to a church going through COVID. He's talking, come on. He's talking to a church going through persecution who might have just lost a loved one or a family member or something like this. He's talking to a church who's losing people through persecution and executions on a weekly basis. And he says, don't stop. Don't stop. Amen. Why? Because you've got a spiritual gift. You've got a call. You've got a purpose. Because it's not about saving your own skin. It's about redeeming cities. Yeah. Yeah. Most important of all, 
Don't let the opposition distract you 100%. from your call. 100%. Chapter 4, verse 19, he says, So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, what does that mean? That means it's not your own fault. You didn't dig your, like, it's, it's not opposition because you're being stupid. It's, you're, you're facing opposition because the devil hates what you're doing. Amen. I get more nervous when there is no opposition than I do if there is opposition. Because the devil's leaving me alone, I'm going, I'm not picking on him enough. So if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, then he said, look what he says, keep on doing. Keep on doing. Keep on doing. Keep on doing what is right and trust that your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. In other words, let God do the fighting for you. You just keep loving. You keep serving. You keep giving. Let the battle, the battle is the Lord's. I'm going to keep loving. I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to keep on doing what is right. Is this helping anyone? You know what Nehemiah did? Send Ballot and Tobiah were introduced to them. Just, we just introduced to them. For the next 10 chapters, they hound Nehemiah. They first kind of raise up an army to try to, to kill Nehemiah and all of his workers. And Nehemiah prepares the army. We're going to see that as we, as we go along. He prepares them for battle. And they see that they're prepared and they don't come. Then, because that didn't work, they start the secret way and they start nit nitpicking at him and, they, and they, they call him to a secret meeting. And I, I want to I I show you Nehemiah's response to opposition because Nehemiah's response to opposition just reiterates what Peter said. Keep on doing. Don't stop. Because Nehemiah, when they invited him to the secret meeting in which they plan to kill him, Nehemiah says this, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. So when the devil starts picking on you, you just, you just reply to him, I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. When, when you feel the temptation to pull back, it's like you tell yourself, no, -uh, I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. Amen. Come on, Amen. I want, this, I, want, I, want, I want this to be your mantra, to keep it in your mind, in your heart, and, and constantly. This week, just, I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. Amen. As long as your work is good, I'm doing a good work. Great work. I cannot come down. Because today's takeaway is simply this. You can't do big things while distracted by small things. You can't do big things if you're distracted by small things. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah couldn't rebuild the city by having a meeting with a bunch of critics. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. You can't do big things while distracted by small things. So the question I want to ask you is what's distracting you? What's distracting you? Because when we get into opposition, we, we turn and we, we face it and we pay attention to all of that and we stop 
And when we stop loving, serving, giving, the devil wins. And I hate it when the devil wins. And I've discovered in my own life, I've survived trials, but I've allowed trials to distract me. And I want to resolve like Nehemiah. I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and the wisdom in it and the relevance of it. Here we are 2,000 years later and still Peter's words <laughs> so true. I pray that you'd help us God to not be surprised by opposition to not be distracted by opposition to not fear to not worry God I pray that we would keep on doing right keep on loving keep on serving keep on giving God we're doing a good work rebuilding cities Restoring homes, we cannot come down. Give us the strength to know what to do, the wisdom to know what to do, and the strength and the courage to be able to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to run through a prayer with you right now that does exactly that. And it's not joining the church. It's not joining religion. It's simply just a relationship with God. So uh, if you'd like, you can close your eyes, bow your head, repeat after me here. So dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you now to become my Lord, to become my Savior, to become my friend. I thank you that my past is past and that I can begin anew with you today. My heart is yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So guys, if you have prayed that prayer for the first time, there's a link in the comment section that you can click on. Fill out that form. We'd love to hear your story. We'd love to be a part of your journey, help you out in any way that we can. Uh, but do that by filling out that link there. And congratulations on an amazing, amazing decision.